0: It's a Minimalist Monday edition of Optimal Living Daily, episode 766, an excerpt from the audiobook Everything That Remains, a memoir, by Joshua Fields Millburn and Ryan Nicodemus, and I'm Justin Mollick, your very own personal narrator. Happy Monday, hope you're having a great start to your week, and welcome to Optimal Living Daily, where I narrate the best blogs I can get permission from to help you optimize your life. I'm trying to optimize my health because I'm sick. More on that in a second, but first, speaking of health, thank you to Health IQ for sponsoring this episode. Health IQ uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health conscious people like you. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com/slash living or mention the promo code LIVING when you talk to a Health IQ agent. So I'm all congested and probably not great for me to narrate for you today, but I asked Joshua Fields Milburn of the Minimalists if I could share some of the audiobook that I produced for them here on the show. And he said yes, which is greatly appreciated. I wanted to share this with you because, well, it was the third audiobook I made for them. I did two other audiobooks last year or about a year and a half ago. And then this one was the last one I did, which came out almost exactly a year ago. We didn't submit it anywhere for reviews or anything like that, but Audiophile Magazine got a hold of it and they gave us their Earphones Award for this production. So I'm very grateful for that recognition. It was a huge shock, something I never expected. And I'm super honored. Now I get to share some of it with you. It's a really unique book. You'll hear why in a second. So with that, here's some of the book as we optimize your life. Everything That Remains, a memoir by The Minimalists. Written by Joshua Fields Milburn with interruptions by Ryan Nicodemus. Read by Justin Mollick, Music by We. So yo then, man, what's your story? David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest. A brief note for the reader. This book is a work of nonfiction, sort of. You see, all characters and entities herein really are real, and all the events actually did happen, but sometimes we had to make stuff up, e.g. specific dialogue, precise dates, the various colors of the sky. Structured as a book-length five-year conversation between his two authors, Everything That Remains is written as a first-person narrative by me, Joshua Fields Milburn, with intentional interruptions, comments, interjections, and smart-alecky remarks from Ryan Nicodemus. This structure is somewhat mimetic of our in-person interactions, i.e. we like to interrupt each other a lot. In this book, occasionally you'll hear Ryan's interruptions, like this one. It's worth noting that a handful of names, persons, and corporations were changed to avoid pissing off certain folks and to avoid pissing on them as well. We also took occasional creative liberties to aid the flow and continuity of the book, which was attenuated, necessarily, from more than a thousand pages at its bloated nadir to its current slender tone. And it's almost certain that Ryan and I misremembered or couldn't agree on some people and events. And yet these misremembrances are, in a weird way, still true. After all, truth is perspectival, isn't it? For want of a better descriptor, we decided to call this book a memoir. Trust me, I realize how pretentious it sounds to have written a memoir at 32, but it's not really a memoir, more like a bunch of life lessons explored in a narrative format, which allowed Ryan and me to flesh out many of the topics we touch upon at our website, theminimalist.com, expanding on those topics by way of storytelling and conversation. When Joshua says storytelling and conversation here, I think he's saying that much of the syntax in this book is meant to take on the brain voice as you get closer to the consciousness of the author-narrator. While writing this book, we wanted to preserve an oral tumbling tumbling-words-out-loud feel of the work. Hence, you will sometimes see run-on sentences, passive construction, progressive tenses, unconventional compound contractions, compound conjunctions, compound words that aren't necessarily real words, e.g. living room, peanut butter, bumper sticker, food bank, and other intentional grammatical faux pas in the writing. These stylistic devices are used to advance a narrative in a meaningful, more realistic way. They also, hopefully, help sculpt the conversational tone of the book. Besides, autobiography sounded too stiff and stilted, a title reserved for more important folk, presidents and tycoons and child actors with drug problems. If you hate the whole idea of calling this thing a memoir, then please feel free to call it something else. Call it a prescriptive nonfiction novel. Call it a personal history. Call it a recipe book for a more meaningful life. Call it whatever you want. I won't mind. JFM. Part 1. Everything. 1. Fluorescent Ghosts. December 2008. Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. I'm seated in a cramped conference room surrounded by ghosts in shirt sleeves and pleated trousers. There are 35, maybe 40 people here. Middle managers, a lot of us. Mostly Caucasian, mostly male. All oozing apathy. The group's meeting complexion is that of an agoraphobe. A Microsoft Excel spreadsheet is projected onto an oversized canvas pulled from the ceiling at the front of the room. The canvas is flimsy and cracked and is a shade of off-white that suggests it's a relic from a time when employees were allowed to smoke indoors. The rest of the room is aggressively white. The walls are white, the ceiling is white, the people are white, as if all cut from the same materials. Well, everyone except Stan seated at the back of the room. Cincinnati's population is 45% black, but Stan is part of our company's single-digit percentage. His comments, rarely solicited by executives, are often dismissed with a nod and a pained smile. Although he's the size of an NFL linebacker, Stan is a paragon of kindness. But that doesn't stop me from secretly hoping that one day he'll get fed up with the patronizing grins and make it his duty to reformat one of the boss's fish-eyed faces. You can't miss the enormous broadspan logo on the wall behind us, a rapacious-looking, line-drawn eagle, soaring, its wings outstretched, clutching the company's side-by-side vowels and its talons. Right here, right now, our occult tagline is typeset below the logo in Helvetica bold. If you say right here, right now repeatedly, it begins to take on a sort of metaphysical edge, a profound truism the skinny tie guys in marketing didn't intend. We are currently landlocked in the middle of the 11th floor. This is the final Monday sales meeting of the year. Not a single beam of natural light can be seen from my vantage point. Seated between my boss and my boss's boss, both of whom have Irish surnames and are nearly indistinguishable from one another, the air stinks of industrial strength cleaning supplies and years of resentment. Every seat at the large Formica conference table is full, so a handful of laycomers are forced to stand, congregating toward the back of the room as if waiting to give confession. The table is littered with printed spreadsheets and half-empty Starbucks cups. Someone behind me yawns, which triggers several more yawns among the crowd. Boredom is contagious. The projected spreadsheet is out of focus, so we're all staring forward, squinting, attempting to find something meaningful in the blur. The projector emits a drone of white noise that everyone pretends to ignore. But I can't ignore it. How could you? That incessant hum controls the atmosphere around us, holding hostage all other sounds. The overhead lights are partially switched off. Everyone is baptized in half-light, a hideous fluorescent glow that makes us all appear vaguely ill. There's another yawn across the table, and then another. A man with pudgy red cheeks sniffs twice and then wipes his nose on his cuff. Ryan Nicodemus, my best friend of 20 years, the only man not wearing a tie, walks into the meeting wielding a massive coffee cup and a jutting jawline that carries an apologetic grin and a couple days' worth of dark stubble. He's swarthy and confident, and very late. Hi. Sorry there was traffic. My boss, or is it his boss, asks a question I don't realize is directed at me until I hear my name. So how do you explain the decline in attach rates this week, Millie? Half my co-workers call me Millie, which seemed endearing half the time and patronizing the other half, depending on the person and their cadence. I look to my right, and then my left. Both men are fixed on the glowing grid at the front of the room, their faces red with early-onset rosacea, a condition that makes them appear perpetually angry, or embarrassed, or somehow both at the same time. The spreadsheet, dull and cloudy, is color-coded green and red, apropos since it's three days till Christmas. The color scheme is inadvertent though, it's always the same every meeting no matter the time of year. Green is good, red is bad. Red dominates the blur today. I look at the numbers and try to affect what I hope is a sufficiently displeased look, followed by one of my dozen or so standard laconic answers, some jargon about marketing spend and GRPs and TPRs and a few other acronyms that are supposed to make me look like I have a well-informed grasp on the situation. Half the room nods sympathetically to the rhythm of my gnomic reasoning. The bosses seem pleased with my explanation. I pretend to jot a couple notes on my yellow legal pad, something quote-unquote actionable. Ryan, now standing at the side of the room, just shakes his head at my line of bullshit. The projector is still thrumming, becoming more and more pronounced with each passing moment. Mmm. I feel the urge to shout silence toward no one in particular, but there'd be too much irony in such a command. The bosses move on to the next excuse, Baron. At age 27, I'm the youngest director in our company's 140-year history. For a while, I thought this was impressive. You know, an admirable title to throw around when someone asks, as we invariably do, that most pernicious of questions, what do you do? To which i could respond with an air of accomplished pride i'm the director of operations for 150 retail stores fancy right well not exactly you see this is all pretty much one big accident in more ways than one my entire life has been an accident so it's difficult to figure out exactly how i got right here right now the accident started on june 29, 1981 at 2:39 pm in dayton ohio a blue collar rust belt car manufacturing city Brought into this world at the tail end of Generation X, the self-centered me generation, I was born to a 42-year-old bipolar father and a 36-year-old alcoholic mother. Ours was the blueprint of a dysfunctional family. I too was raised in a dysfunctional household before dysfunctional was cool. Lowell, my broad-shouldered, silver-haired father, suffered from schizophrenia and had persistent, elaborate relationships with people who did not exist in the physical world, people who conspired against him to ruin his life. He was taller than most tall men, large in an ex-football player kind of way, three times the size of my mother, Chloe. Chloe was prettier than he was handsome. Together, they were two wasted bodies of flesh, mullowing in their shared torment. My first childhood memory is of the three of us in our living room on Green Street, me on the couch, my father's face hypertonic and expressionless as he extinguished a cigarette on mom's bare chest just below her clavicle. A quarter century later, my wife complains about my still lingering nightmares, my middle-of-the-night limb spasms and shrieking. Mom finally left Lowell a year later. She started drinking more heavily around the same time. I was three. I saw Lowell one other time, at Christmas, when I was seven. Years later, I found his death certificate. It noted advanced stage alcoholic cardiomyopathy as the cause of his heart's failure. My only memory of his funeral is of Mom struggling with a broken umbrella at the burial ceremony underneath a pessimistic sky the top spring failing to hold the umbrella's runner in place, causing it to collapse in on itself. I don't remember the six hour drive to Chicago for the funeral, nor do I remember the return trip, but the downpour at the grave site was torrential and unforgiving. For much of my pre adolescence, I thought money came in two colors, green and white. Mom sometimes sold our white bills at a two to one ratio, fifty cents on the dollar, because she could purchase alcohol with only the green bills. Not once did I see any of the government-mandated nutritional pamphlets that were delivered with the white bills at the beginning of each month. Mom earned minimum wage whenever she was able to hold a full-time job, but she was unable to for any appreciable stretch of time because when she drank, she went on benders in which she stayed shut in, in our one-bedroom duplex apartment for days at a time, often not eating, just drinking heavily and chain-smoking Salem Lights from a green soft pack, stumbling and falling and ensconcing herself on the ash daubed couch. Red wine was mom's preferred drink, though she settled for tall cans of Milwaukee's Best, or whatever beer was least expensive that week, when she could not afford the bottom shelf wines at the liquor store seven tedious blocks from our apartment. The store's owner sometimes allowed mom to purchase beer on store credit. The walk to the store was always fueled with buzz-filled exhilaration and anticipation, both of which placed a heavy fog over her shame. But the walk back was composed of nervous expectancy, much like a child returning from the supermarket with a newly purchased toy, removing the toy's complicated packaging and playing with it in the car before making it halfway home. Similarly, mom couldn't wait to unpackage her brown paper bag on the way home. Just one beer, she had justified to herself, to no one at all. So the last three blocks were the hardest part of her trek home from the store, at times resulting in her halting to rest on one of several benches. Although if she stopped to rest, she almost assuredly had another beer. Just one more to take the edge off, and on numerous occasions someone found the 90-pound woman asleep on a bench just a few blocks from her home, blanketed in erratic street light, a brown paper bag, in her clutch. Mom would return to our humid apartment, which smelled faintly of urine and empty beer cans and stale cigarette smoke. I can still smell it now. And when she was too drunk to venture into the kitchen, Mom's modus operandi was to hide her empty beer cans under the front flap at the base of the couch. Sometimes she was unable to make it to the bathroom on her own, The couch cushions had been flipped dozens of times. Cockroaches scattered every time I turned on a light. They appeared to come from the next door neighbor's apartment. The neighbor was a kind and lonely man, a World War II veteran in his mid-70s who seemed to own three or four apartments' worth of possessions and who didn't mind the bugs, perhaps because he had seen far worse or maybe because they kept him company. You just listened to an excerpt from the audiobook Everything That Remains, a memoir by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. I'll tell you more about the fun of narrating that in a second, but first, a big thanks again to my sponsor for today's episode, Health IQ. If you're getting in shape for New Year's, if it's a resolution of yours, or if you're in shape already, you should check out Health IQ, because they can get you lower rates on life insurance if you're health conscious. That could be if you're a runner, strength trainer, cyclist, vegan, and more. Or if it's near your birthday or half-birthday, that's when life insurance companies will up your rate. So why not get a quote right now? 56% of Health IQ customers save between four and 33% on their life insurance. They're able to do that because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. It's just like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver. Health IQ can save you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle, and it's really easy to get a quote to see if you qualify. Get your free quote today at healthiq.com/living, or mention the promo code Living when you talk to a Health IQ agent. So, like I mentioned at the top of the show, this was my third audiobook that I made for the Minimalists. I was getting more efficient at doing it. The first one took forever because I grossly underestimated how much time it'd take but this one was different, it has those interruptions by Ryan and in the book version, they are noted with a number and then the number's at the back of the book. So I didn't know if I should record the book without his interruptions and then add them in later or if I should flip back and forth and do them in real time, it was tough. I ended up doing all of his interruptions at once at the end and then inserting them when editing the book. I think it worked out well. But yeah, it was an interesting one to narrate, a big experience and I'm glad I did it and they gave me the opportunity. I'm gonna continue playing this chapter for you tomorrow. In the meantime, if you wanna learn more about the book and or The Minimalists and their tour dates and documentary, all of their fun stuff, just head over to theminimalists.com. That'll do it for today. Hope you're healthier than me, having a great start to your week. And I'll see you tomorrow where your optimal life awaits. Hey, this is Dan from the Optimal Finance Daily Podcast, which is a lot like this show, except more focused on personal finance,